Welcome to our October 2023 Empower Women podcast episode, Women's Health and Midlife. This month, we were joined by Danielle Starer, family nurse practitioner. In this episode, Danielle discussed various topics around women's health, including breast health for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, reproductive aging and sexual health, nutrition, and bone health. Enjoy. So thank you for joining today's uh, Lexington Wealth Management Empower Women series. We do these once a month just to bring women together to talk about various topics, to talk about um, things that maybe people want resources to, and just to be able to ask questions in a safe, open, casual environment. Today we have Danielle Stair. She's a friend of the firm and um, we've known Danielle for quite some time. We're excited to have her today. She is both an RN and a family nurse practitioner and has had over 14 years experience in internal medicine. She's worked in Boston for Shriners Hospital for Children. And what I love about Danielle is that she thinks a lot about Eastern and Western medicine um, and and actually really believes in preventative medicine. So nutrition and lifestyle modification, in addition to the traditional things that when we all go to our doctor, they either prescribe for us or um, hope to make us well. So with that, I'm gonna kick it over to you, Danielle. Remember it's casual, so feel free to ask questions. You can also type a question in the chat and any one of us will read that for Danielle. So thank you, Danielle. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Christine, for the introduction. So um, just talking about women's health today, I started off my career actually in pediatrics in a pediatric um, burn ICU at Shriners Hospital for Children, which is a non-for-profit pediatric burn hospital, had an amazing 10 years of experience there as a nurse and then transitioned into my advanced practice RN role as a nurse practitioner and then decided to transition back into primary care internal medicine, where I've been now in the community for 14 years, as Christine stated. So um, women's health is definitely one of my favorite topics to talk about, and women's health in midlife is the topic for today. So um, this is my family. I have three daughters, 17, 15, and 11, and my husband, Mike, is a physical therapist, so we kind of both you know, talk about health a lot at home. And because October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we'll start the, today by talking about some breast cancer topics, self-breast examinations, imaging studies like mammograms, and when you should maybe seek to do ultrasounds or MRIs. Um, next, we'll talk about some hormonal changes that happen in you know, perimenopause and then transitioning into full menopause, how that can affect your body, your mind, how it affects your sex drive and bladder control. And then lastly, um, your bone and musculoskeletal health. So when you start bone densities, how muscle loss can affect your overall health and well-being. So as we were talking about, October is breast cancer awareness. So um, I do advocate for all my patients and try and do it myself um, to do a breast exam once a month. When you're still menstruating, you want to do your breast exam after your menstrual cycle because before and during you can get lumpier from just hormonal changes and things like that. So, you know, kind of knowing your own body is always good, whether it be a change in a mole, whether it be a change in your skin, whether it be the way that your bowels are functioning. And then, you know, as a woman assessing your breasts once a month. So as it shows in the images, you want to first always start with inspection. So 
I can go through like a little bit of a demonstration as well, but as it shows um, in the image, you kind of want to be standing in front of a mirror, put your hands against your hips and sort of activate your pectoral muscles, look for any dimpling within the breast tissue, look for any abnormalities in the way that your nipples look. And when you activate those pectorals and breast muscles, you look for any kind of dimpling. And then you can either do your breast exam standing like in the shower or laying down in bed. You always start in the underarm, which is your axilla, and you're looking for any lymph nodes that would feel like a little bit large or tender. And then you start on the outside, go around in a circle using two or three fingers and you work your way in towards the nipple. And, you know, some women do naturally have really lumpy breasts. So that's where it's good to know your own lumps and bumps. Um, but something that would be kind of abnormal almost feels more like an M&M or frozen pea or a pebble. And of course, if there's any question, then you always have that checked by your provider, which can be done either by an ultrasound or a diagnostic mammogram, um, or if you're at higher risk, certainly an MRI. Um, but self-advocacy is super important. And I always tell my patients, you know, you know your body best. And if you feel like that there's something that has changed, then we need to investigate that further. Um, and in that self-advocacy, of course, you can always ask for a consultation with a breast surgeon. I work with Steward Medical Group. We have a great breast surgeon, Catherine Tucker, who came from Tufts Medical, and she like really advocates for women, really pushes to get the additional imaging. Um, and at Steward, we have a breast radiologist who only reads the mammography, MRIs, ultrasounds, all just breast imaging exclusively. So speaking of the breast imaging, when you think about a mammogram, you know, people get worried about, oh, radiation exposure, things like that. So it's basically a very small amount. It's pretty much equivalent to a standard x-ray. And with any kind of intervention in life, you always want to say, does the potential for benefit outweigh the risk? So it's a very low risk, low amount of radiation exposure. You do always want to look for a 3D mammogram as opposed to the 2D. The 3D is especially helpful for women with those really dense breasts and can detect breast cancers at a much earlier stage. So definitely wherever you go for your mammography, you want to do specifically ask that they have the 3D as opposed to the 2D, which the 2D is getting a little bit outdated at this point. Um, so that's really important. So as far as breast cancer screening guidelines, this is kind of like the basic for low risk that you start generally around 40. Um, I still advocate for every year as opposed to every other year. Um, again, it's non-invasive. It takes about a half an hour of your time and it's a little bit uncomfortable, of course, with the squishing. But other than that, you know, again, going back to that risk to benefit ratio, but some women who are low risk, no family history or anything, they sometimes transition to doing the, the every other year for a period of time as well during their life. And, you know, that's fine again, as far as long as they're low risk and that that's their decision-making. Okay. So, you know, this is kind of like a general guideline of, you know, how your hormones change throughout your life. Um, so of course, perimenopause can happen anytime, like in your mid thirties to mid forties, a lot of times it's consistent among family members, like when your mom or your sister might've gone through the change of life and it can last, you know, from one year to several years. And then menopause is considered when you have had the absence of a menstrual cycle for a full 12 months. So during perimenopause, which is like sort of the transition into menopause, you have a lot of changes going on in your hormones. 
specifically a decline in estrogen. But I do tell women, as long as you're having a period, you can still get pregnant. So you are still fertile during perimenopause. So although some women feel like, oh, I can't get pregnant because I'm in my forties now or whatever, it can still happen. So definitely want to use that birth control um, appropriately for your own risk factors again. So symptoms of perimenopause, irregular periods, or sometimes you might miss a period for a couple months. They could be heavier or lighter, you know, of course, the hot flashes that everybody dreads, um, which there are a lot of things that can help with that. Vaginal dryness, which can interfere with obviously sexual activity um, and can also cause some burning, some discomfort with urination. It's called the genitourinary symptoms of menopause, um, sleep issues, again, related back to sometimes those hot flashes being worse at night. And then sometimes, of course, some mood changes, which happens with hormonal fluctuations just in general. Um, so things that you can do, you know, naturally, again, like going back to nutrition, I always tell people food is medicine, like you learn in preschool, you know, you are what you eat from your head down to your feet. So foods can impact your hormone levels, as well as you know, some of these changes that you're going through. So having foods that are rich in calcium and D, um, obviously exercising, avoiding trigger foods that can activate hot flashes, regular exercise, so there's a lot of debate about phytoestrogens. So phytoestrogens are estrogens that come from like food type sources, which most of us associate with like soy. Um, so tofu, tempeh, flax seeds, sesame seeds, things like that. Good hydration. And then avoiding those like processed foods that can really trigger hormonal changes. What's so that? what are the trigger foods? So, so the things that actually help to decrease the hot flashes are those things that are rich in phytoestrogen, but trigger foods that can make hot flashes worse would be more like caffeine, alcohol, sugar, things that vasoconstrict. So caffeine is a vasoconstrictor. And when those blood vessels are squished, it's kind of like, you know, a balloon that if you squish a balloon, it can get really tight at the top. And that's like sort of the same thing that happens with that, um, flushing and feeling of hotness. Um, as far as calcium and D, most people get enough calcium in their diet, but Pretty much everyone living in New England wants to take a D supplement, especially during the fall and winter months when you're not getting that natural sunlight exposure. So that's as far as like, you know, the dietary things that you can do to either make things worse or make things better. So with hormone replacement therapy, kind of the two basics are that if you've had removal of your uterus or a hysterectomy, you pretty much do estrogen only for hormone replacement. If you still have your uterus, then you want to do something with estrogen and progesterone because taking just estrogen alone, if you have your uterus, can put you at high risk for problems with the uterine lining. Um, people that are not candidates for hormone replacement therapy are people who smoke cigarettes, have a family history of estrogen-based cancers or um, people that are high risk for blood clots. So any like underlying clotting disorder, but a lot of people can benefit from hormone replacement therapy. It's ideal to just do the lowest dose in the shortest duration of time, just to get you through that kind of like suffering. But, you know, just like anything else, there's always, you know, potential for pros and cons. So weighing out with your provider, what works best for you as an individual taking into account like how much you're really suffering with your symptoms, how much they're impacting your daily life and what your overall risk factors are as well for those potential side effects. So the hormone replacement is something that you would recommend you, are, you only take during the time when you're 
having like those bad symptoms. And then, cause at some point that stuff goes away. Correct. Correct. Would, okay. Yeah. So most women will take them for maybe like anywhere from one to five years. There are new research studies that actually show that starting them earlier in menopause generally decreases your risk of those negative side effects. And as we'll talk about um, a little later too, there's some new Alzheimer's research as well that show that um, for some women that are higher risk for Alzheimer's, that starting um, estrogen therapy or hormone replacement therapy early in menopause can actually help preserve your brain function as well. So that's really novel studies that are coming out now and you know, are not necessarily well advertised for people to know about. So definitely something that if that's something that runs in your family, maybe a consideration that you would want to have. So as we briefly talked about before, that there are genitourinary symptoms of menopause, which means that you have kind of genital symptoms of the dryness and burning, sometimes urinary changes, um, more frequency, urgency, sometimes pain or burning, and then of course the sexual symptoms. So Luvena is kind of like an over-the-counter lubricant that you can try. Some women feel like apprehensive about talking about these things at their, you know, appointments, whether it be with your primary care or your GYN. Um, but this is something that you can try that's more of an all-natural um, vaginal moisturizer and lubricant. Some women use it daily. Some women just find that they only need to use it a couple times a week. But it helps not only from a sexual standpoint, but also with some of those um, vaginal everyday symptoms that contribute to dryness and burning and things like that. So this is the, the study that briefly looked at Alzheimer's disease, which does have a greater incidence in women. And there have been research to studies to show that, um, again, estrogen therapy can have a, a benefit. But again, if you have a uterus, you do want to be having estrogen with progesterone. Um, if you don't have a uterus, you can do estrogen alone. Um, and again, those side effects that can be associated with estrogen therapy of the increased risk of hormonal cancers, stroke, blood clots. So um, the Women's Health Initiative has done a lot of studies that show that if you start that hormone replacement therapy, though, a little earlier, like before 60 years old, that sometimes you can avoid those um, risks from occurring. So that can be helpful. And again, the shortest duration of time. So other alternatives, so if you're not a candidate for hormone replacement therapy because you're a smoker or you have blood clots in your family or you have hormonal cancers in your family, you could use something like along the lines of an antidepressant. So the only one that is technically FDA approved for the treatment of menopausal syndrome, um, specifically hot flashes, is the generic for Paxil, which is paroxetine. It's sold under the na brand name Brisdell in a lower dose to help with hot flashes. So again, you're kind of skipping over those potential side effects with hormone replacement therapy. And you're addressing sometimes more like the mood swings as well as just the hot flashes um, by using the antidepressants. There are a couple other off-label SSRIs that are also used like Celexa and Lexapro, um, and they seem to help similarly to Proxetine. I always tell people with antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, they work with your body chemistry. So sometimes what works good for one person doesn't always work great for another person. So you sort of, it's a little trial and error, like, you know, as far as using these medications, they generally take about four weeks to build up in your system. So it's not like an overnight cure. It's something that you kind of have to build up in your system. A couple other 
um, off-label medications to help with hot flashes are gabapentin, which is a old seizure medication that oftentimes has like a little bit of an, a calming effect for taking at night. People get like a lot of sleepiness side effect with the gabapentin. So that can help specifically more if you're just suffering with the hot flashes primarily at night. Um, or oxybutynin, which is something to treat overactive bladder. Um, and that can also help with the hot flashes. And if you're having some of the bladder symptoms as well, um, comes with the side effect of dry mouth. So some people don't really like that um, side effect can also cause a little bit of constipation. So so decreased libido, so sort of going into, you know, again, those genitourinary symptoms, sometimes with mood changes and things, you can have decreased libido or sex drive. So the FDA has approved um, a couple of medications for the treatment of low libido. However, they are only approved for perimenopausal women. So before you're considered to be fully in menopause, they're not approved technically for postmenopausal women, but I have a feeling there'll be more to come um, in, in the future. But the two are at a in Valesi, and um, Valesi is less commonly used because it's an injection, and a lot of people don't really like to do injections, so the Addy is a pill, um, but both of them have kind of similar side effects as far as like nausea and dizziness and things like that, um, but some women feel like that that helps like with their sex drive and things. Other things that can help, you know, with your sex drive other than medications are certainly exercise, which increases your blood flow, increases your ability to have more pleasure during, during sex. And then um, a herbal supplement that has shown in studies to be helpful is ginkgo biloba. But with any kind of herbal medications, you definitely want to review that either with your provider and or your pharmacist. Pharmacists are great resource as far as with med interactions and things like that. But ginkgo biloba has been shown in studies to help with um, decreased sex drive. And especially when people are on an antidepressant, sometimes they have a decreased sex drive as well. And the ginkgo biloba actually in some studies was shown to reverse that side effect by about 84% in participants that took the ginkgo biloba. So that can be something to consider as well. Okay. So sarcopenia is kind of a term that a lot of people might not be familiar with. It has to do with muscle loss. So most people think about bones and bone strength and bone density because that's been more commonly, you know, talked about. But sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass, is actually equally as dangerous to loss of bone mass and kind of goes hand in hand with an increased risk of falls, fractures, mortalities, um, increases actually your risk of death by about um, nine times the rate of somebody without sarcopenia. So sarcopenia, like I said, means muscle loss. So you can see in these images that a healthy muscle at the top of a 40-year-old triathlete, you can see that bulk. And then you can see compared with the middle image, which is a 74-year-old sedentary individual that has a lot more adipose tissue on the outside. Um, those are measurements of the thigh and down at the bottom, compared with a 70-year-old triathlete, has maintained that muscle mass pretty much looks almost identical to the 40-year-old triathlete. So just showing that age is just a number, you know, you can still maintain your muscle mass into your, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, as long as you maintain a regular strength training regimen. So as I briefly went into sarcopenia means loss of muscle mass, 
starting at age 30, you naturally just start to lose muscle mass on your own, about 8% approximately per decade. And then that jumps to almost doubles to about 15% per decade um, in your 70s. So super important to build and maintain that muscle earlier. So it's you have less of that risk of the loss. So as we know, we probably see with like aging parents and things like that is it can affect even just activities of daily living, getting up from a chair, you know, doing basic carrying in your groceries, getting up and down the stairs safely, um, things like that. And I always tell people, if you don't fall, then you don't fracture anything and maintaining muscle and balance is super important in, in not falling. So then therefore you don't fracture. So a couple ways that you can test your own strength is super simple. Everybody has a chair at home. Usually I would recommend kind of pushing it up against the wall so it doesn't sort of slip out from behind you and having arms there, but you're not going to use the arms. You're going to do sit to stand five times, crossing your arms over your chest. And it's kind of a standard table height chair, like something you'd have at a kitchen table. And you see if you can sit and stand five times without holding on to anything. And that's one good way to check for, you know, the two biggest muscles in your body, which are your um, gluteus, which is your bum and your thigh muscles. And it also just kind of teaches you to do good um, lifting maneuvers because when you lift, you want to, like this woman is doing in the sit stand, have that nice straight spine and be using the thigh and butt muscles as well. So so going into the bones, so osteoporosis, osteopenia. So those are diagnosed on a bone density test. Usually bone density tests are started at 65, which is when um, most women have gone through the change of life, which of course going through the change of life into menopause does create, again, those hormonal shifts that decrease your bone density. So a normal bone density is anything greater than a minus one. So like a zero or a plus one would be considered normal. Osteopenia, which means that you have thinning of your bones, is a minus one to minus 2.5. And anything that is less than the minus 2.5, so like a minus three, minus 3.5, you're now osteoporotic and high risk for fractures. So at what age do you recommend people get like a bone density test? So for the general population at 65, but okay. if you had an early hysterectomy with removal of the ovaries, so your ovaries are where you get your hormones. So if you just had a hysterectomy and you still have your ovaries, you still have those hormones. But if you had removal of the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, which is referred to as a total hysterectomy or a complete hysterectomy, then you could be higher risk for bone density in an early age being an issue because of the loss of those hormones earlier on. Or if you're a person that's been on prednisone or steroids a lot in your life because of autoimmune disease or lung disease, severe asthma, COPD, um, prednisone, which is a steroid, can also decrease your bone density. So therefore, you'd be a candidate for earlier screening as well. Or if you went through the change of life really young, like some women go through the change of life in their early 40s. So they may want to consider bone density a little earlier on as well, like usually around five or 10 years after you've gone through menopause. So that's where the 65 comes from is sort of like the average where women have been like kind of 10 years into their, you know, postmenopausal stage. Um, and I also do bone densities on men, you know, so some of my males that have been on steroids a lot or have autoimmune disease and have been on medications that decrease their bone density because 
certainly men are at risk for, you know, osteoporosis and fractures as well, but more common in females because of the decline in estrogen. And we also don't have as much testosterone, which the testosterone that males have helped them to maintain muscle and bone mass a little bit better. Um, so do, is this something that your doctor will automatically recommend or should you be advocating for it? Most of the time they will do it in conjunction with a mammogram when you get to be age appropriate, um, but certainly advocating for yourself if you've ever had like what's called a pathological fracture, like let's say you just like kind of went the wrong way off of a step and you ended up fracturing your tib fib or something like that, like you had a fracture that was not in conjunction with the injury, like something that was more significant, you'd want to say like, oh, I kind of like had this weird fracture from this pretty minor injury. So is that an indication that my bones might be a little weak, you know, so that would be another kind of circumstance in which you'd want to advocate to get maybe an earlier bone density. So, but it's not a mandated screening. It's kind of like one of those more like elective screenings. So if, if it does get kind of passed over or missed, it's definitely important for you to ask like, Hey, am I a candidate at this point for bone density yet? And, you know, is that something that would give valuable information? So that was kind of what we talked about, um, as far as like when, the starting is or what the conditions are. Um, so the other thing that I didn't mention is people with hyperthyroidism. So hyperthyroidism, which means that you have an overactive thyroid gland, um, can also contribute to um, weakening of the bones. Or if you're a person on thyroid supplementation because you have an underactive thyroid or you had a thyroidectomy, you always want to make sure that those levels are balanced because even taking too much you know, whether it be Synthroid or Levothyroxine or Lavoxyl, if your levels are too high, that can actually put you at risk for weaker bones as well. So super important to monitor those thyroid levels in addition to the other risk factors. Um, and then like we talked about the pathological fracture. So a fracture that occurs without a significant injury can be a sign that there would be um, potentially a weaker bone situation. So this is kind of briefly what a DEXA scan looks like. So you pretty much just lay on the table. They usually do two measurements like around the hip and the thigh bone and give you that um, score that indicates whether you're in the normal range or whether you have the thinning, which would be the penia or the full osteoporosis. This, this is just an image of the spine and of the hip, which are two of the markers generally used to um, detect your, your bone density score. So what can I do to, you know, keep them strong? Certainly, again, back to the food as medicine, eating foods that are rich in calcium and D, again, that exercise, which helps to keep those muscles strong and your balance, because if you don't fall, then you're not going to break anything. Smoking does weaken the bones. Soda weakens the bones. I tell people soda is second to cigarettes and being terrible for your body. So, um, a soda alternative is doing like more of the seltzers or club soda, if you like that kind of carbonation, um, and then limiting alcohol consumption. Can I ask a question mm -hmm. about, um, just on that back one about balance? Yes. Does that improving balance, mm -hmm. how would you suggest 
someone improve balance? Yeah. So a super easy thing that I tell my patients, everybody hopefully brushes their teeth at least twice a day. So I tell people in the morning and at night, when you're brushing your teeth to stand on each leg for 30 seconds, because, you know, brushing your teeth for pretty much a full minute is a good idea. So you stand on, you know, your left leg for about 30 seconds while you're brushing your teeth. And then you switch to your right leg and you have the counter right in front of you because you're usually at a sink or something like that. So if you feel like you get a little off balance, you can kind of hold on. Um, but other opportunities throughout the day, like when you're cooking dinner or something, again, when you're at a counter that you can sort of grab on if you lose your balance. But I'll usually do like a little brief demonstration of that for my patients in the office. And that's something that, you know, doesn't require you to go to a gym or any equipment mm. and just sort of teaches you. And as you get more advanced, you can, you know, balance on one leg, put your arms out to the side, sort of touch your nose, rotate your head, like do things to challenge yourself a little bit more. Um, but just the one leg stance is, is a good place to start. You know, if you wanted to be more advanced, if you're younger, more athletic, you could do a one leg jump, you know, jumping rope, all of those kind of things are good ways to maintain your balance and weight bearing, like doing jumping kind of activities does help increase your bone density as well. Right. Thank you. Sure. Danielle, when you say soda on the last yes. previous slide, you're meaning anything with sugar, right? So anything. So even or... diet soda. So especially the dark colas, because the dark colas are even more detrimental as far as your gastrointestinal health, as far as leaching um, iron from your body. So um, just soda in general is- So like is, a seltzer? Seltzers are fine because those okay. are basically just carbonated waters. So seltzers are good because it's, like I said, it's just water infused with carbonation and often like natural flavors. Um, but soda, you want to limit, you know, obviously the sugary sodas. Yeah worse, but even diet soda, you're getting a lot of artificial chemicals and things that are not good for your body as well. So, um, and then going back to, you know, diet, we address the calcium and D and then also protein. So protein is the building block of muscle. And unfortunately, a lot of studies show that a lot of older people are especially, um, deficient in their protein, um, sources. So a lot of times, even in somebody's blood work, if I see that they have a low protein or a low albumin level, I'll address that with either the patient or the family member, like to maybe add in like boost or ensure as a supplement or getting some protein powder that you can sort of mix in with your bowl of oatmeal in the morning or making a smoothie or blending it even just with water. If it's something you're going to sip on through the day and you don't want like dairy to be sitting at room temperature, um, people that are on the go for work, you know, getting one of those shaker bottles that you can do some protein powder, some water, throw some ice cubes in there and sort of be able to sip on it through the day. Um, of course, we all know like the basics of protein are your meat, chicken, eggs, fish, and then your non-animal based. You can do things like beans, quinoa, which is green that has lots of iron um, and protein in it as well. So this is just like, again, a brief rundown that your foods that are rich in calcium, D and protein. So obviously salmon has all of the above, especially if it has those little tiny bones in it, then you're getting the D. Um, and then of course your non-animal-based um, kale and then your dairy sources like milk, cheese, yogurt. Um, cooked collard greens have the highest amount of calcium out of pretty much any food. They have 268 milligrams of calcium. So um, you want to get about 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day and about 2,000 international units of vitamin D. 
So if you do take an over-the-counter supplement of D, I usually recommend vitamin D3, which is most well-absorbed by the body. And D is a fat-soluble vitamin, so I usually recommend taking it with a meal. And you can get it in a gummy, you can get it in drops, you can get it in a capsule, however you prefer to take it. But again, I do recommend it for people living in New England, specifically in the fall and winter when you're not getting as much of that natural sunlight um, exposure. How many milligrams of D should you take a day? Typically, so vitamin D3? D is, yep, D is international units. So it's 2000 I use daily for most yeah, 2000. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. um, but also advocate to get your vitamin D checked at least once a year. It's a little bit of an expensive blood test. So it's not usually ordered in like a standard panel. Um, but yeah. I usually check it once a year, um, maybe more often on my patients that are higher risk for osteopenia or osteoporosis. Um, but it's, it's important to have that checked as well. So it's the blood test is an O hydroxy, um, vitamin D and the normal range is between 30 and hundred. So I usually like my patients to be at least like around 50 or 60 so that they have a good level. Thank you. Sure. So again, like we briefly touched on starting to build your muscles and your bones early. So most of your adult muscle mass and bone mass is accrued and peaks at around age 16 um, through 18. You have a chance to really have a lot of building and maintenance until about age 30. And then you start to sort of have a little bit of a drop off, especially females, um, when those estrogen levels start to decline. So um, things that builds the most bone are, you know, anything weight bearing, like jumping, more strength training. Um, and then of course, going back to the diet stuff. So you don't, again, have to go to a gym. You can use your own body weight. I love to recommend resistance bands because resistance bands are easy to store. You can throw them in a drawer. You can do it while you're watching the morning or evening news. Um, using your body weight, like push-ups, squats, lunges, which are also good for your functional everyday activity as well. But, um, you know, if you have kids or family members, like getting them active at a young age, because once it becomes part of your everyday life, it's a little easier. So these are my, my three strong girls, my youngest, um, who's 11 and she has done dance, aerial gymnastics, and now she's a cheerleader. So she does some strength training. We have like a little setup in the, in the basement. And then my other two started going to the gym, like when they were in their teen years. So my Madeline in the middle, who's my strong girl, um, she's just like naturally strong and pretty much doesn't have to do a whole lot to maintain. And then, um, Isabella on the left pushing the sled. So just teaching them those good, you know, lifestyle habits to maintain, um, Allie doing her little aerial skills in the corner. And that's me doing an assisted uh, pull up with a, a resistance band in the middle. So it's okay to, you know, sort of use some assistance with a resistance band if you can't quite do a full chin up on your own. Um, and again, this goes back to, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to have any fancy equipment. You can just use your own body weight. You can use resistance bands. And I always recommend people to exercise outdoors when the weather is appropriate because you get the benefit of the the D from the sun and some fresh air. And it's equally important for your mental health as well as your physical health. You know, we're all much more aware of mental health. And I tell people all the time that exercise is just as valuable for your mind as well as your body. Um, exercise increases endorphins, serotonin, norepinephrine, 
which is basically what a lot of the antidepressants do. I tell people that, you know, research studies done showing, you know, those endorphin rushes after exercise were kind of how the original antidepressants were formulated to increase those chemicals and things that are released from your brain when you're happy, when you're in love, when you're exercising and all those things that cause that good, healthy release of chemicals in your body is what happens um, with exercise. So, so again, just for overall function, I'm, we probably all have parents who are worried about them falling. And if they fall, that they can't get themselves up again. So this is a great way to, you know, help um, our elderly patients learn how to get themselves up, whether it be crawling over to a sofa, a chair, or coffee table, or practicing exercises at home. Again, I'd always have a chair pushed up against a wall as opposed to just free floating there so that it doesn't tip over. Um, but that's a, a nice functional way to, to practice squats and lunges um, and going back to that stability and that strength that helps to prevent falls as well. So people say like, oh, is it possible? So this is a 90-year-old who does you know, weightlifting on a regular basis that she can squat 80 pounds and deadlift 135 pounds and she only weighs 105 pounds herself. So pretty impressive that again, it can happen at any age. And then lastly, posture, you know, so we all are at the computer a lot or we're reading a lot and we sort of find ourselves getting hunched over, which can cause a lot of not only curvature in the spine, but also pain decreases your um, rib expansion when you're breathing. So super important to maintain your posture. So I tell people like a couple easy things that you can do at home is just sort of standing, you know, up against a wall and having your arms back against the wall and just going up and down the wall with your arms. But also at the end of the day, sort of pulling your, your arms open like this and opening up the chest wall, um, touching your, your scapula together in the back so that you get that really good stretch or holding on to something and sort of stretching one arm at a time to open up the chest wall, especially when you've been sitting all day and sort of hunched forward on the computer. Having a sit-stand desk, so even sitting for prolonged periods puts a lot of pressure on the spine. So being able to stand periodically during the day or like I said, having that sit-stand desk or taking a phone call standing up is, is helpful as well to prevent that rounding of the spine and losing height and having, again, all of those kind of stressors to your spine. So I have a question. Um, sure. You touched on a lot of really great things. Um, can you, I know this is like probably a subject people don't want to talk about, but can you talk about like gastrointestinal a little bit and like how important it is to be like moving your bowels regularly and oh, yeah. how to do that? Mm -hmm. So super important. So a lot of people struggle with specifically constipation and a lot of times it's from not hydrating well enough. So not drinking enough water um, and not having enough fiber in the diet. So fiber without water is basically like sludge in the intestines. So you need them to go hand in hand. And again, I, I tell people food is medicine. So everybody's all like, oh, what supplement should I take? What, what should I take to help me to go? But First of all, your bowel can become dependent on laxatives. So I always tell people to steer away from laxatives because it can be a vicious cycle. You know, once in a blue moon, if you're a little bit backed up and you take an over-the-counter stimulant laxative, that's fine, but just not on a regular basis. So natural, you know, ways to help you go to the bathroom are warm things. So warmth helps to relax and dilate the bowel. So 
starting your day with a warm cup of water with lemon, um, using a heating pad, like especially women like around their menstrual cycle, sometimes have had irregular bowels. So warm, a warm pad on the lower abdomen massage. So just like we sort of help massage babies' bellies when they're a little bit backed up, you can do that to yourself. So sort of first thing in the morning, especially the left lower quadrant. So left lower quadrant, when you're you know inspecting your abdomen, is where you're going to find that you're a little bit backed up. So the abdomen is divided into four quadrants. So if you did like a tic-tac-toe on your belly, so you have your right upper, your left upper, your right lower, left lower. And just doing almost like some downward massage can help with the GI tract. Um, exercise. I always tell people, if you take your dog out for a walk, they usually take a poop. So sort of the same thing for humans, you know, like after you eat, try and do like a little light walk, try and do a little light exercise. And that helps to get your GI tract going, you know, and a lot of people talk about, um, gut bacteria and gut health. So you don't have to do anything crazy special to have good gut bacteria. You have to just eat a balance of fruits and vegetables, have maybe some probiotics in your diet. You can do kefir, or you can do yogurt with live active cultures. Um, those are good sources. But again, just eating from the earth primarily, like 90% of your food should come naturally from the earth. Avoiding things that are out of a box bag or a can other than frozen vegetables, because frozen fruits and vegetables are usually actually sometimes healthier than their fresh counterparts because they're frozen at the peak of freshness. So that's the one exception. But Pretty much if you follow those staple things, then for the most part, your gut health will be okay. Um, when I do put people on an antibiotic because they have an infection that requires an antibiotic, I do tell them to either take a probiotic supplement or have a lot of foods rich in probiotics because antibiotics do kill off that good, healthy gut bacteria as well as the back, bad bacteria causing whatever infection you have, whether it be a bronchial infection, a sinusitis, a urinary tract infection, anything like that. And as we've probably all experienced is that sometimes you can get a yeast infection because then you have an overabundance of yeast that happens from killing off again, those good healthy bacteria. So um, going back to, you know, the basics, if you do want to take something over the counter, if your stool is really hard and you suffer from hemorrhoids or rectal fissures, you can certainly just do a stool softener, which is not addictive to the bowel. It just helps to soften things up so you're not straining as much. Um, so that would be like something like a colace or a docosate sodium. Or I am a big fan of Miralax. So Miralax is an osmotic laxative. It's the white bottle that has the purple cap. You fill the cap to the line with the powder. You mix it with a big glass of water. And it draws fluid into the bowel to help you to empty a little bit better. So again, when you're under stress or you've been traveling or maybe you haven't eaten well for like a week and you're feeling like kind of bloated or backed up, you can safely use the Miralax because it's not a stimulant laxative. That was, that was really helpful. Um, I would say one other thing, I think for women, the whole mental health thing, like mm -hmm. taking care of people, taking care of spouses, or children, our parents and right. So just, you know, just maybe some quick suggestions on keeping our own minds as healthy as we can. A hundred percent. You know, I even have to remind myself of that sometimes, you know, like you spend your whole day taking care of everybody else. You know, like you said, you're at your work, your kids, your home, 
Did I do the grocery shopping? Did I make the best meals? Did I get everyone's laundry done? Whatever. So definitely carving out opportunities for your own mental health, whether that be, again, fitting in time for exercise, fitting in time to see your friends, fitting in time to just go out for a walk, you know, just to take a little walk away, take a little bit of a mental break. And then doing something that's special for you, you know, whether that be going to yoga class, going to get your nails done, reading a book, taking up a new hobby, like going to a cooking class, you know, whatever gives you fulfillment is super important. And, and sometimes you have to schedule it in. So, you know, like I know my phone is like my schedule and I, you know, put everything in there and it's all prioritized by, you know, the kids practices or schedules or when they have, you know, due dates for things or whatever, or work-related things, but also putting in your schedule or in your calendar, like, okay, these are the days this week I'm going to hit the gym, or these are the days I'm going to meet up with a girlfriend, or I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to, you know, get to bed early. And um, just even making a shower, like a relaxing spa-based type of a thing, you know, like, so getting yourself a nice scrub, you know, treating yourself to a face mask or whatever, you know, taking those little tiny opportunities to have, you know, important time for yourself. Metamucil is a fiber supplement. So Metamucil is like kind of the one that we're all familiar with that makes your water turn orange. You can also do Benefiber, which is um, just clear. So you can mix it in your coffee or tea and it doesn't change the taste at all. It dissolves a little bit more easily. It's usually in a green bottle. A lot of times it'll be in either the GI section at the pharmacy or sometimes even it's considered a weight loss supplement. So something else that fiber does, which is amazing, is it actually helps to bind to that bad LDL cholesterol and helps you to poop it out. So for my patients that are intolerant of taking a statin and they have like a bad LDL cholesterol, which is that bad artery clogging cholesterol, I do recommend them to take, in addition to dietary fiber, like flaxseed, fruits and vegetables and whole grains, I do recommend a once a day fiber supplement. If you take too much fiber, you can get a lot of bloating and gas. So you want to kind of ease into your fiber um, so that you're not getting that bloating and gas side effect. Um, but Benefiber, Metamucil are great to bulk the stool. But again, super important to have the water with those supplements as well. Is there a time where it might be too early to introduce strength training for children? Right. Actually, no. So my husband's actually done a lot of research on this. So I said in the beginning, he's a physical therapist and he's a certified nutritionist, strength and conditioning. So we kind of share like a lot of information. And it used to be thought that specifically for boys, if you got them into like weightlifting or strength training too early, it would like quote unquote stunt their growth. I was told, Danielle. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that's, that's actually, exact, it's actually yep. been not to be correct. So you can start strength training as early as, you know, three years old. Um, and again, starting with body weight and making sure that they're just being safe is the most important thing. So, you know, you want to have good form good technique. I always tell people when you're doing any kind of exercise, always think about that old fashioned, like, you know, book on the top of your head to keep your spine nice and straight. Cause a lot of people do a lot of bending and that's actually really bad for the spine. It's exerting a lot of force unnaturally on the spine. So when you're doing lunges and squats and things like that. So that's why I tell people like a wall is, you know, kind of your best friend, whether you're doing, you know, squats, you can do them up against a wall to teach yourself to keep that spine nice and straight. Um, but no, there's no contraindication. The earlier, the better. And it helps them with sports. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of actually research that shows that um, it helps with self-esteem because 
especially with females, you know, like social media and they're seeing all these unrealistic body images and things like that. So it really actually helps a lot to build their self-esteem to think about strength and um, super important. Like again, having three girls, I'm always thinking about body image. So I, I never use like the F word, even with my patients, if they say like, oh, I'm fat, I'm like, we don't use the F word, you know, like we'll say like, okay, I, I'd like to, you know, trim down a little bit, or, you know, I'd like to get healthier, like think about things in healthier terms. Right. Or right. if my kids ask for like a junk cereal, I'll be like, well, that's not the best for your body, but how about we look at like this one that maybe has like a little less sugar and is a little bit better, but still will taste really good, you know, and just teaching them those building blocks on their own. And you know, a couple of times my kids have gone to parties and they drink 10 juice boxes or eat, you know, three, you know, servings of cake and they feel physically ill because their bodies aren't used to having that sugar. And then they like learn to modify on their own. They learn like, okay, I can't have five juice boxes. I can have one and I can't have three pieces of cake, but I can have one and I'll be okay. You know, so it's just teaching those, you know, healthy balance, you know, like you, yeah, you want to eat healthy 80, 90% of the time, but you also want to enjoy life and, you know, have a glass of wine or have pizza or have some French fries every now and then, like that's totally fine and appropriate. But again, learning that balance and learning to integrate the exercise, learning to integrate the, the good nutrition and finding that proper balance and having that, you know, good self-esteem. And it's not a size two or a size six. It doesn't matter what size you are. It matters how strong you are. Like, are you able to lift things? Are you able to carry things on your own and you don't have to ask somebody else to do it for you, you know? Um, so I think just reinforcing that it's about being strong and healthy and not about like what size you are or yeah. anything like that. And again, Danielle, thank you so much. This was excellent. We will be sharing um, the podcast and we will also be sharing some takeaways so you can feel free to pass those along to anybody. Um, again, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To listen to past podcast episodes and to see our calendar of upcoming events, visit our website, empower-women.com. We also invite you to join us on November 14th for our next Empower Women event, Gratitude, Wisdom, and Blessings, Writing an Ethical Will for Your Loved Ones. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity-specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult with their tax or legal advisor for related questions.